I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. There was no PR. There was no press. I mean, I sent an email out to, you know, 150 people from a Hotmail account. On this episode of Unfinished Biz, Vintner's daughter, founder and CEO, April Gargiulo, walks us through the timeline of her entrepreneurial journey, from harvesting grapes to packaging face serums. When her family ventured into the winemaking business, April quickly learned the ropes of selling and distribution, plus the importance of storytelling, since making good wine requires significant time and effort. But when she decided to enter the skincare market, April found herself telling a whole new story from scratch. We have to be more meticulous. We have to be more disciplined. This is not fast, right? This is slow. We say that we move at the speed of quality. Find out why the Bittner's daughter business model believes in sacrificing growth for quality, the many ways that agriculture and skincare are parallel industries, and what April sees as the next step for her hyper-focused brand. Unfinished Biz starts now. Robin, we have an exciting episode here coming up with April Gargiulo, who really you know, takes a similar approach to building a skincare line as making wine, because she's really become an expert. And, you know, she's uniquely done both. Well, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, given the fact that she's coming from a family that was big in agriculture, that that already had a lot of entrepreneurial spirit. So even though she wasn't really already embedded in skincare, I think she brought a lot of those tools from just her family life into her business. And the similarities, you know, go beyond that in that wine can be, you know, from anything from like two buck chuck to the highest end products. But, you know, if you really want something special, you know, you're going to have to pay out for it. And that's that's no different with skincare. And she's approached her Bittner's daughter brand in a similar way. Honestly, one of the things that was also great was just hearing, and we hear this story all the time, is just this idea of when you travel into a new industry, it doesn't matter how much talent or connection you may have, you're going to run into challenges. And that's going to be something that that we hear a little bit more about too. So here we go. April joined us from our house in San Francisco to tell us all about the Vintner's Daughter story. I think I started a jewelry business when I I was about 10. And, you know, and so, and I grew up around entrepreneurs. My mom was an entrepreneur or is an entrepreneur. My father is an entrepreneur. So I, that was definitely the family I grew up in, but I, you know, went to New York city after college. I worked design and architecture was my kind of first love. I worked inside um, really extraordinary design and architecture firms, and then moved out to Napa to help my parents start our family winery. And, um, and so that was certainly where I was kind of much closer to entrepreneurship. In fact, um, I always think it's, it's extraordinary that my parents put so much trust in me with the winery because they sort of said, okay, here's four barrels of wine. We're going to have 20 next year and figure it out. Were they previously in the wine business already when no. you mentioned what what, no. entrepreneur, what what entrepreneurial business were so they in? Agriculture. So my mom was in development okay. and then my father was agriculture. So, I mean, wine, growing wine grapes is obviously agriculture, but he wasn't, he was in kind of fresh fruit agriculture. Um, but winemaking was always his dream. That was the like absolute his dream. And so he, um, they bought a two vineyards in Oakville and Napa Valley 
in the 80s and were just growing grapes up until the early 90s, at which point we decided to start making our own wine and developing a brand under Gargiulo Vineyards. And while you were actually doing, um, you're in New York, you're doing something entirely different. Mm-hmm. So how did you actually make that transition? What inspired you to come back and and and, and get into a totally different business? Um, 9-11. Mm. I mean, so 9-11 happened. And my first inclination was that I just needed to be in New York City. I needed to be with my people. I needed to be with my city. But then after that, I kind of wanted to be closer to my family and closer to nature, closer outdoors. And so that's what brought me back to back to Napa. Got it. And how did you, you know, when you came back to to help launch the the family business from a winery state, like how did you think about roles and responsibilities between you and your and your parents? Well, um, this is where I say it's extraordinary the trust my parents put in me because my father still had a day job. He um, was the CEO of Sunkist in um, in Los Angeles, and that's where my parents were living. And they again, they they had incredible trust in me. I think it's extraordinary every day. I actually think it's insane that they just said, "Okay, here you go." <laughs> and what I will also say is, winemaking and the wine business is it's kind of slow, right? They're not going to have any kind of like huge, massive shifts overnight necessarily because you know how much wine you have. You know that in three years you're going to sell it. It was a very lovely, I think, and kind of graceful uh, pace to learn the winemaking industry. But what I will also say, and this is a huge thing about Napa Valley um, winemaking, is that there's this very much this ethos around like all high tides rise all rise all boats. And so there's an extraordinary um, community of of people who really want to help one another. And so I was lucky to be kind of taken under the wing of several people who really down to just showing me, okay, like, this is how you work with a distributor. These are all the margins. This is how, you know, all, all like super tactical stuff, um, all the way up to kind of just like bigger moments in terms of like growth and, and strategy and branding and all, and all that kind of things. And were you able to take some of the other sort of things that you had learned in your previous jobs and, and sure. bring them into, into the wine space? Absolutely. I mean, I think, I mean, one of the things would definitely be a focus on design and a focus on um, storytelling. And I think um, visual communication, it it used to be, and I think it has changed now, but it used to be, it wasn't cool to buy a wine based on a pretty um, cool label. Right. And I think that's (laughs) right. Right. And I think that's completely changed now, you know, and for me, I thought, why can't you have both? And that just wasn't something that had happened before. Right. And so um, to, to bring like that kind of like design focus and sensibility um, to our, our branding and, and how we tell our story was something that I, that I brought from, from my days in New York. But also the companies I had worked with in New York were both family run companies, the two that are kind of stand out and very much kind of design driven companies. And I think that that's something that was that I was able to bring over two. And I'm really having that integrity around the way you told your story and, and every aspect, right? We had it with what was actually in the bottle. Now, what about the kind of ecosystem around that bottle and how we tell our story and how we communicate um, who we are and, and what, you know, ultimately what we believe in as a, as a, as a family and as a winery. And did you, did you build a team around you initially, or was it more of like oh, a, a jack of all trades model of like April doing kind of farm the table. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was that for a little while and believe I believe me, I look back on it and think, oh my gosh, why didn't I build? I mean, I, for, you know, for a while I thought I should do it all myself. My biggest learning in, in all of my kind of entrepreneurial experience is that te- it's just always about team, right? 
And so uh, I wish I'd built a team around me sooner than I had. In winemaking, like you really want to have a DTC model, right? You want to be able to sell as much as you can through your um, your direct channels. You you know you get to know that customer. That customer gets to know you. It's is more fulfilling. But if you need to move kind of larger quantities of or volume, then you need to work through a distribution model, right? And 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 work with restaurants and 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 retailers and what have you. So. I was very focused on um, the distribution side of it because, again, it was I felt like it had to be just me. And so how was one person going to have, you know, sell the volume that I needed to sell? But, you know, looking back on it, I should have hired an entire tasting room team. We should have been doing, you know, uh, just building out that DTC, which eventually we did get there. What was the turning point that triggered you to decide to to hire a, a broader team? What was it? I think it, it just became so clear that I think probably exhaustion was probably um, a big one. And it just became so clear. We be, we were becoming much, much busier. People were becoming, they knew who we were. They wanted to come to the winery and it started, there was, there was, there was, it was probably more, more, but if I'm being really honest, it was probably more of a pull than a push at that, at that point. Yeah. So you, you move back after September 11th, Walk us through kind of like the timeline of like, so when you know you're on to something, you're hiring a broader team, when approximately was that? 2005, Okay, maybe? so you're kind of four, kind of three, four years back from New York. Mm-hmm. You're seeing the, the business hit its stride. What did you find that was resonating with consumers at that point where you go, I think our family winery is really on to something? So this is a great question. So we were coming out of, out of a time where Napa Valley, the wines that people wanted in Napa Valley were these huge oak juice, like fruit bombs, right? And those were not the wines that we were making. We were making wines that are, that, and still today, the wines that we want to make are wines that are these, you know, time capsules of this, these specific properties, these specific grapes at this, in this one vintage, yep. right? Like we want to create these, these like love letters to the, these places in time. And so that's really about expression in a very pure, what we believe is more of a true expression. And those wines are more what you may think of as, as kind of old world wines, right? They're, they have this like really beautiful integrated balanced fruit, oak, tannins. And so we were in a way kind of going against the grain. And this is something that I even think about with Vintner's Daughter and and absolutely helped me um, get through some tougher times with Vintner's Daughter is that I remember sitting there with my father one day and saying to him, and I, of course, I'm, I'm a salesperson, right? And I'm thinking, oh, it would be so much easier if we just made these big fruit bombs and it would be so much easier to sell all the things, right? It's a formula to make those wines. I know who to call. I know what to add to make those wines, right? Um, in some ways, they, they, they're they almost like a cocktail versus an actual wine, right? Mm-hmm. And so I say to my father, like, would we, hey, what do you think about this? Would we ever think about doing something like that, you know? And he kind of looks at me and he says, April, here's the deal. No one buys these wines. I have to drink them. And I'm only drinking the best wines in the world. <laughs> that's what we're making. And I love so, that. But here's what's so interesting is I get to this point in Vintner's Daughter 10 years later, and I'm being pushed to make a certain style of product like everybody else makes that's cheaper, that's faster, it's better. And I can remember being in this moment where I was like, wait up, if no one buys this product, I have to use it. And I am only <laughs> using the best skincare. So it's funny how, you know, it, 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 it was, it was that this conversation that I'm sure my father probably hasn't thought about since, but something that really left a mark on me and, and really allowed me to kind of have the, this kind of like fortitude in the face of a marketplace, whether it was wine or skincare, that was really different than what we, what we were doing. Now, interestingly, wine has come full circle 
And the market really wants wines that are um, ex deeply expressive of a place and a time. There's always some kind of, you know, cyclical nature, I guess, maybe to it. So how did you get into the skincare business from like, well, was there a transition point where you wanted to do something different? Yeah. Walk us through that, that, that journey. So I was, um, I was traveling a ton with the wine world and I was, um, about to start a family and I knew that I just didn't want to be planes, trains and automobiles anymore. So we hired somebody far better than me at the winery to be GM and run the winery. And at that time I started kind of thinking about what I would do next. And I started parallel pathing actually three different kind of business ideas. One was called Mighty Butter. It was a, the idea was it was going to be this like superfood infused butters. Uh -huh. Sounds delicious. Today, it sounds really like a yeah. great idea. Back then, like everyone thought I was completely banana. Again, I, I, Paul's just asking the year question. So when was yeah, this? Sure. 2010. Okay. All right. And then um, the second idea was I was going to make something called um, skinny vine. It was going to be low calorie wine. Ah, interesting. And then the third one was this idea of skincare that was completely clean, non-toxic, but really performance-driven skincare, Vintner's Daughter, right? And so I was sort of parallel pathing them all. Um, the one I knew the least about in terms of an industry standpoint was skincare. I was somebody who had um, kind of had skin issues all my life. So I was a very avid consumer of skincare and always had been. The, the, the clarity came is I remember I was in, I was literally in our kitchen, in, in our Napa house with my husband in our kitchen. My husband's sort of a serial entrepreneur. And he's like, he's sitting there looking at me going, April, you can't do three at the same time. you got to pick one. Like, let, let's talk, let's talk about it. Tell me about each one. I talk, tell him about Mighty Butter tell him about skinny vine. And then I talk to him about Vintner's daughter and it becomes very clear just in my body language, the way I'm talking about it, the length, you know, I probably talked about skinny vine for five minutes, mighty butter for 10 minutes and, you know, Vintner's daughter for an hour. Do they all have brand names at that point? You're, you're referring, you're <laughs> oh, yeah. referring I mean, to them with brand. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, I still have the URLs. It's so it's crazy anyway. Yeah. So then it became very clear that it was Vintner's daughter, very, very clear that it was, it was skincare. And, you know, having grown up amongst Napa Valley and these very audacious people who had this idea that they were going to put Napa Valley on the map for the finest wines in the world at a time when Napa had only been known for kind of sacrament, kind of pretty schlocky wines, right? And they did it. And they did it through a dedication to only farming in the very highest, highest quality ways and creating these wines that were really about this beautiful process and honoring the land and honoring the dirt and taking that and applying it to skincare, because what I started to realize was that skincare is made in this like very, very fast way. It is made with pretty much all synthetics, chemicals, very fast, very cheap, um, that in some cases are also toxic to you and the environment. And so I wanted to create a skincare company based off those same kind of the same philosophical foundation as the winemaking world that I had come from, that was all about quality, that was all about craftsmanship. And so that was, that was really how I was thinking about Bittner's Daughter and where the genesis of Bittner's Daughter came from. And how did you get your start? Was it a, a one-person show at the beginning, similar to the wine experience? Oh, you have no idea. Like I, okay, so I still to this day kind of laugh because I'll, I'll talk about when we launched and the we was me and the launch meant that we had a website that worked. I mean, there was no PR, there was no press, there was no, I mean, I sent an email out to, you know, 150 people from a Hotmail account 
and said, hey, you know, this, this is it. This is this product that I've worked on for three, almost three years. You know, I've had skin issues all my life. You know, I like live and breathe skincare. And this is the, the what, this is the product. This is it. Like this, this will, this is, this is the product I've been dreaming of my entire life. And having come, you know, coming from somebody who, who at this point had a, a pretty big expertise in, in products, um, not developing products, but as a consumer, um, I think I, and I had this group of friends, again, I sent it to like a hundred people on a Hotmail account and they all bought it. And so that was really exciting. And then, so for the first probably couple of weeks, I knew everybody who purchased the product, right? And then slowly but surely, I, and I was doing it all, right? I was doing the, I was, it was me. I was a one man show. But how did you figure out where to even, how to formulate it and make oh, it? Oh, okay. So that was a two, that was like a two and a half year, three year process. Okay. Today, it is a lot. Anyone out there who wants to start a skincare company today has it so, I mean, I guess that's always how it is, but it's a lot easier, right? Because you have access to so many different labs and you just go and you pick a, pick a, I mean, and this is actually my problem with skincare also. Traditional skincare is that you go and they pick a, you know, they pick something off of a lab um, shelf that's already been formulated. You change the scent or you change the color or whatever, and then you slap a label on it and there it is, right? So that's why so much skincare feels the same. I wanted to do something so completely radically different. I wanted to begin with whole plants. I did not want to start with powders. I didn't want to start with extracts. I didn't want to start with synthetics. I wanted to start with whole plants. Um, and I wanted to create a process that allowed me to extract all of that goodness from those plants, all those nutrition, all those actives, all that, ultimately that plant intelligence, because I knew that would lead to a product that could have a very deep communication with the skin and bring about the skin's best self. And it was a process that I know is a very traditional process, but it's a process that is very expensive, very time consuming, and to a larger degree than obviously synthetics, more error prone. But coming from the world of winemaking to spend three weeks making a, a product or a skincare product for me felt like nothing. Um, mm -hmm. right. Because it takes three years to make a bottle of wine. Yep. So for me, it felt like, Oh, this is a breeze guys. Let's right. we're going to make this bottle. It's only going to take three weeks and it's going to be the best skincare in the world. Like easy breezy. But you know, ultimately I would go to these labs and they would look at me like you've lost your mind. How cute. They kind of give me the proverbial pat on the head and be like, Oh no, that's not the way you do it. You know, you use this, this it's cheaper, it's faster, it's better. Um, that's when I had that moment going back to that conversation with my father, where I said, okay, well, I'm going to have to figure out a different way because if no one buys this, I have to use it. And I'm only using the best. <laughs> so it was, it was, like I said, it was about two and a half to three years of like searching for people who shared my ideas around formulation, who really had a very deep respect for the botanical world and what you could create, um, the kind of skincare you could create and um, taking it away from that kind of hippy dippy world and moving it into like a very luxury performance driven space. So did you end up with a more traditional lab at the end of the day, or did you actually just have to find someone who was totally like a very radical thinker? I had to come up with a very radical thinker, but it was also somebody, interestingly, somebody who had been in the um, skincare world since the sixties and actually looked at me and was like, April, nobody's been wanting to do these kinds of formulations since the sixties. <laughs> right. I was like, let's do this. Okay. You know? Yeah. So it's, again, it's a traditional formulation, but something that no one out, no one anymore is willing to take the time to, to actually do. Was getting it manufactured as hard as getting it formulated or was that easier? 
It was like a nail biter. It was, it was, an, it, it was a, for the first, every formulation for the first year was a nail biter. Like, is it going to work? Are we going to be able to make it? Is it going to make enough? Are we going to pass? There, there are shockingly few rules in the skincare industry, right? So, and, and, and coming from where I'm coming from, I have a lot of, like, I'm in the trust but verify world, right? So yes, we're going to do all this and then we're going to test it all and make sure that it is where we want it to be, right? And so we do an incredible amount of testing. So at the beginning, yeah, every formulation was a nail biter. Well, one thing I've always found really interesting and even within this story is just how deliberate you've been, right? Just in terms of taking the time to think about what you want to do, taking the time to make the right product and then taking the time to build sort of a business model that you are excited about. So can you walk us through a little bit more? Now you've got this singular product. You've got a hundred people who are actually trying it. <laughs> yep. Not just my mom. Yeah. And what, what do you do next? Yeah. I mean, so I think you bring up a really good point. I think one of the things that has helped me so much throughout this is like having very, um, like a, just being very disciplined, disciplined about my North star and what I want to do. And ultimately that is to have this extraordinarily positive impact on my customer's skin and their lives. And we always hold that up. That is our North star. It's, it's how we make decisions. And I think anytime that I've kind of gotten a little squirrely um, in terms of deciding kind of strategy for the company or where we're going to go, it's when I start to look around me and realize that everyone else is doing it differently. And also, you know, recognizing that, you know, our North Star is very unique. And as you said, it's one that just takes an incredible amount of like, we have to be more meticulous. We have mm -hmm. to be more disciplined. Like, this is not fast, right? This is slow. It, it's something that we take an incredible amount of pride in ultimately. Right. And we, we say that we move at the speed of quality. I like that. So after you were hot mailing it to a lot of your friends, like what, what was the moment where you knew you were onto something and did it take off like from the start yeah. or was it like a slow roll? Like it was a slow roll, right? It was a slow roll. And like I said, one day I started getting orders from people like in the middle of the in the middle of the country and I, that I didn't know. So it started to build like this. And then one day I got an email. Um, it was interesting because my husband said, Hey, did you get that email I sent? And I'm like, no, I didn't get it. Shoot. It must've gone into spam. And I never checked my spam, right. Ever. I go to my spam and I look and there is an email from someone at into the gloss. And at, the po at this point into the gloss was, was before they launched Glossier into the gloss was the sort of mecca of beauty information, beauty press, right? Like if I was going to create some kind of um, illustration of all the things that would meet, I made it in the world from Vintner's Daughter, like into the gloss would be in the middle, like in glitter, giant letters. And so I get this email and it says, and it's from like an intern into the gloss. And it says, oh, we're doing a story on wine-based skincare. We'd love to talk to you. No idea how they found us, what have you, but they did. And so I email back and I say, Hey, you know, we're really not wine based. Do you think I could talk to the writer? And again, I know nothing about press at this point. It's probably, you know, not kosher that I asked to talk to the writer, but I did. And thankfully the intern didn't know what he was doing either. And so he connected me to the writer <laughs> and I explained to her, Hey, I know you're doing this story on wine based skincare, but that's not really who we are. There aren't any ingredients that we share with wine. We share a common philosophical foundation of a commitment to quality and craftsmanship, but it's not about any particular ingredient. I said, I'd still love to send you product. I don't think we're right for this story, but I'd, let me still send you product. Get off the phone with her. And at this point, by the way, I've got a two-year-old and I'm seven months pregnant. 
and I'm a little insane. Okay. <laughs> so I get off the phone and I say, um, oh my God, I just said no in the gloss. Like, have I lost my mind? But I'm so busy that I kind of chalk it up and say, well, you know what? At least I stuck to my guns. At least I like stayed there with true, again, this like idea of discipline, right? Around around storytelling. At least I, I, I said who we are. I didn't try to conform to some other idea of who we should be stuck to who we are moving on. Right. And I'm packing boxes and I'm changing diapers and I'm doing all the things. <laughs> Maybe like two weeks later I wake up. And at this point we're probably getting like, I don't know, 50 orders a day ish and um, retailers who like fall in love with our product, live for our product, but have no idea how to market a single SKU. Right. We had one product. No one had ever done this before. It, there was no model for it. Like mm-hmm. nothing. Right. Right. And they would look at me and they'd be like, we don't know how to talk about it because at this point, this was a high point of the like 15, 20, 50 step skincare routine. And I was was (laughs) suggesting you needed one product, right? And so these retailers, literally, they didn't know how to talk about it. They didn't know how to merchandise it, nothing. And so I had these retailers who would say to me, oh my God, we die for this product, but we can't, we don't know where to put it. Come back when you've got 10 more products. And I would look at them and I would say, you don't, that's not what we're here to do. Like, I'm, I want fewer and better products. Like I, this might be the only product I ever have. Like this is part of it. Like fewer and better is better for your skin is better for the environment. Like we don't need all this other stuff. And they would kind of just look at me like I was, you know, probably they were looking at me like I was naive. I don't know, but, but they weren't, you know, they weren't understanding it. Right. They just weren't getting it. So I um, wake up one morning, my usual order volume is around 50, 50 orders a day. I wake up 6 30 AM. I already have about 150 orders. And I'm like, oh my God, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and I realized that um, Into the Gloss has published a story. Um, it is not a roundup. It is a single story. It is about Vintner's daughter, it is about our single skew at this point, Active Botanical Serum. And the name of the story is The Face Oil to End All Face Oils. Ooh. And that was the moment. And from there, it was like, gangbusters. The the retailers started to get it. Consumers started to get it. And we've only grown by word of mouth, right? Like I've never done any paid advertising. It, it It's all been word of mouth. And so once people use our product and they're telling their friends and they're telling their family and they're telling their coworkers, they're getting stopped on the street. Hey, what are you doing to your skin? I got a testimonial this morning from somebody who said, oh my gosh, the lady at the coffee shop asked me how I, how in the world I got my skin to be so beautiful. And I was so happy to tell her it was just one product, back to botanical serum, you know? So it's, it's been this steady growth, but if I had to point to one moment, it was that into the gloss, the face oil to end all face oils. And what year was that roughly? Maybe that was 2014, 2015. Okay. And one thing that would be interesting to kind of dive into is again, very, very deliberate, very thoughtful in terms of, in so many different ways, but up until that point, you know, how how had you actually been able to finance the business? So again, single skew, right? So I don't have this like enormous overhead. I don't have all these huge MLQs that I have to live up to. I am going to my lab and I'm begging them, begging them to have like low initial orders, right? Like I I can't even remember what they agreed to, but it was half of what they normally agreed to at the beginning. And it was, I mean, it was on a shoestring. I mean, it was, it was, I had sold a 400 square foot apartment in Manhattan. And so I had money from that. I didn't have PR. I didn't have, you know, there was no such thing as influencer agencies. There was no such thing as, I mean, all the things that exist today, right? It, it wasn't then. Right. So, uh, yeah. So we were end up, we, me was profitable. Um, <laughs> my gosh. I mean, after I think like the third or fourth month, 
And then at that point in time, so obviously you've got some traction now, you know, you're thinking a little bit more about the future. You already spoke a bit about team. Um, at what point in time did you start really feeling like, hey, this can't really be a one person show? Yeah, um, it was, I was getting up early in the morning to do work. In between my kids would take naps, I would do work. Anytime I can, I was doing work. I would put him to bed, I would go back to work. And so I was having this, you know, when I call this kind of extreme mom hours to try to organize it all. And I remember every my husband looking at me one day and saying, April, you are working hard every day to make yourself busier the next day. <laughs> and as if, because I was still under this delusion that I was going to catch up, right? Like that I, it's, which is so crazy when I think about it today. Like, right. And, and so I was, and so it, he said that and it just, it just kind of all clicked like, oh yeah, you're right. Like if I'm lucky, I get, busy. you know, everything I'm doing today, it's just going to make me busier tomorrow if I'm lucky. Right. So then I started, um, and so I, I started hiring and I don't think I was, I mean, I don't, I know I wasn't as deliberate about culture as I, I should have been at the beginning. I think I just, I would just hire anybody. Oh, you want to work here? You want to do this? Okay, great. Come on, let's do it. Right? <laughs> and, um, what were the ramifications of that? Hiring people who don't bring good, good energy to the to the room, ultimately, find nice, nice, talented people, but who don't fit in from a culture standpoint. Like I don't put up with swirl, uh, like gossip. I don't I, like none of that happens. I want to create a very, very functional work environment, and I want everyone to be doing the best work of their lives. And if they're not, let's talk about it. And let's figure out how to get you the resources so that you can. So that, that was it, I would say. Did you um, end up having to turn over that initial team then as a result? Uh, not everybody, but some for sure. But the, the ones who weren't weren't that right cultural fit. Correct, yes. And then did you end up, did, did you continue to self-fund it all the way to now? Mm-hmm. Yes. Which is, which is great. So you've been profitable since the third month. Correct. That's a great message for the, Robin and I encounter so many entrepreneurs that, that describe what you've done as impossible. You know, and we've seen it time and time again, where there's other Aprils that have built good business models that have gross margin. They did a lot of different jobs initially, and there's real authenticity to the company and brand as a result. And every, I'm sure every single person you hired from there, you're like, I've done your job before. And you have a better feel for what the needs are in the business as a result of, of how you started it, which is, so we really applaud the bootstrapped journey that you've been on. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I, I am, I am very um, focused on hiring people who do it way better than I could have ever done it or ever did do it. Um, so we have this incredible, like I said, we have a great team. I'm, I'm really proud of our team and really proud of what we're doing. But I think, you know, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, I think it's really in this like world that we live in, it's very hard to build a company in a, in a world where raising money gets applauded. Sure not what you do with that money. Right. Some either some degree of raising money and or growth, right? right? Or growth at all cost. And I'm sure they're intertwined. Of course. And we're in the business of investing and we've always found that really ironic, you know, of like right. why why is there some big announcement about raising a tremendous amount of money? We've never understood that. It's really about applauding the growth of the business and brand and right. you know and, and the team that helped build it. Yeah. And so it feels, I mean, this is a, this may be too strong of a word, but to those of us who are kind of just kind of moving, moving along, moving along, um, it's, there's all of that, that whole ecosystem feels a little gaslighting, (laughs) 
right. you know, because you're kind of going along, man, like, am I crazy? Like I've built this company. We're really profitable and all the things, but like, we're not growing at 500% a year. Should I be growing at 500% a year? Like, is it, is there something wrong with me that I'm not growing? At five, you know, like all the, all the things that happen right. and no, guess what? Like, yeah, I've had years where we've grown 500%. I've had years where we've grown 300%. I've had years where we've had this insane, just like hold on to this edge of your seat growth. Right. And the reality is that like, I'm at a place in this very kind of confident place that if I can grow 25% a year gasp, for all of those people out there who just think like, oh my God, 25%. Like <laughs> I'm, you know, I don't mean, sorry, but you know, you know exactly what I'm talking about because Absolutely. all my friends who have investors, like if they don't grow at 60, 70, 80, hundred percent a year, like they're in trouble. I want to, I can grow this company to be an extraordinary company Oh yeah, and service our most of all, most important is service our community at this like extreme way of like the highest quality, the highest craftsmanship. And again, like do what I set out to do, which is to offer extraordinarily positive impact to my customer skin into the world. You know what, what I think is super, super interesting about that also is it's not either or. No, of course not. In, in, in the way that you're talking about it, right, is you uh, having that North Star setting a goal, let's just say it's 25%. The truth of the matter is if you grow at 25% over, you know, a set period of time, you get really big, you know, and it's not over decades and decades. And, it, and it's durable. It's, it's durable. Very it's strong. Big, it's very likely very profitable and it's nothing to actually sneeze at. Like that, that is a very, very, I think it's a tremendous goal with an incredible outcome. And I think that's something that people don't spend as much time on is, yeah, like, I don't know, there's no magic to 70% or hundred percent or whatever any of those things are, but growing 25% year over year for a very, very, for a longer span of time, I think that's an incredible business model. And again, I think ultimately create something that is um, stronger. Yeah. I think you have a stronger community, a stronger brand, impact is something that's really important to us, both social and environmental impact. And I think that kind of rate of growth really allows us to, you know, build social environmental impact into every stage of our growth, right? It's been a part of us since the beginning, but years where we grew in that 500, 600%, like it was really hard to like maintain all of our impact goals within that growth. And so at 25% a year, we're able to, you know, maintain all of those North Star goals. And when you're growing so fast, you end up making, I think, mistakes and hiring because you need to just get, you know, bodies and seats. And so we can be very, um, you know, very disciplined about how we hire. Right after the break, we'll be back with our featured guest, founder and CEO of Vintner's Daughter, April Gargiulo. Unfinished Biz is a BMG Partners production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and catch up on more than 50 past episodes at unfinishedbiz.com. There's been 50? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Follow us on our Unfinished Biz LinkedIn page for news and updates. And if you love the show, we love iTunes reviews. Five star only though, please. But now let's get back to our conversation with Vintner's daughter founder and CEO, April Gargiulo. So at this point in time, you know, given the fact that 
you know, you've, you've got this North star, what's in store for the business and the brand? How, how are you thinking about the future? Listen, we have two products, two products like these award-winning products that are changing people's relationship to their skin and creating a lot of joy and confidence and gratitude in their skin, which is what is most important for us. We have a couple products up our sleeve, um, hopefully introducing a new product in 2022. Every product that is sold, every bottle is sold, 2% is giving to um, charities benefiting women and children around the world, um, creating stronger, deeper partnerships with our um, uh, charity and nonprofit partners is something that's really important to us moving forward. And, you know, maintaining our community and, and deepening our relationship with our community and listening to our community and understanding what they're looking for and what they want and how we can, again, like, we want to add positive you know, it positively impact their skin, but also their lives. And so understanding how we can, um, how we can help do that through, again, through skincare, but also our charity and, and community efforts. What an amazing journey, you know, from, uh, from both of your entrepreneurial ventures, both in wine and in skincare. Is there a particular high point in the moment that really stands out? Every, I don't mean to sound too like sentimental about this, but every time I get a testimonial, and, you know, now it's fun because it's not just testimonials through email, but it's testimonials through all the different social channels. And it's, I mean, that, that make those make my day. Those literally make my day. I remember a couple of years ago, Lady Gaga was performing at, at the Oscars and she was wearing Vintner's Daughter and her makeup artist had said how much she loves Vintner's Daughter and working with Lady Gaga. And so that was a moment we, everybody in the company was so excited. And that same night we got a testimonial from women in their 70s who wrote and said, we thank you. This is from, you know, it was from a bridge club. Thank you so much. We have the best skin of our lives. That's great. And so to have those moments, and we're lucky we get those every day, right? Yeah. And so we know that we are succeeding at that North Star. We know that we are like, you know, helping people find that joy and confidence and gratitude in their skin. And being part of that feels really good. I think there's so much of the beauty industry that creates fear and insecurity in people. And so for us to be able to offer something that undermines that or even combats that um, is really important to us. Well, on the flip side, you know, I'm sure every day is not rainbows and unicorns. Is there a, is there a particular low point of being an entrepreneur? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that era uh, that time when I had a team that just like, or the culture wasn't where I wanted to be. That was, that was, that was hard. That was hard just sort of understanding my role in that and what I did and didn't do to kind of foster that. And then just working through the process of understanding, like, how are we going to make this better? How are we going to change? And at this point, looking back on it all, was there a singular moment and maybe there isn't, but is, was there a moment where you felt like you had to put everything on the line? To be honest, I think we had a single product for five years and it felt like we were putting it on the line every day. <laughs> That's fair. That's totally fair. Robin, I think this is one of the first that we've had, you know, uh, what a transition that April's had from the wine industry where it was a very, you know, thoughtful process. Three very defined ideas, Mighty Butter, Skinny Vine, and Vintner's Daughter. And... You know, I think she made a good choice. She did. And 
honestly, she kind of went against the grain. She did it her way. The first really idea of it being a single skew. It's not really what you typically do. I mean, nowadays you do actually have some launches where people focus on a single item, but back in the day, that absolutely wasn't the case. People really wanted to present sets. The second really was instead of being lab driven and having the lab dictate your product, she was so much more focused about doing it her way and actually getting the entire plant involved in her products. I think those are both super, super different than how people typically approach the category. And then doing it in a bootstrapped manner, you know, uh, being completely self-funded and profitable since the third month of the business. I mean, who can deny mm -hmm. that type of success and, and the growth that she's had to date you know, I think one of the things that's really interesting is how she's thinking about the future of of Vintner's daughter. You know, there's nothing wrong with growing 25% plus. It could be a ton more, but to not set these artificial hurdles of 100 or 200%, which may lead to some some poor decisions for the longevity of the brand. Again, very thoughtful approach by April. And the whole way through, you can really sense her passion, right? She's always had this true north, and that true north has been quality first. And I love the story around how if no one else buys the product, she's going to use it herself. So that quality that pervades throughout her business and as well as her, her personal life. Um, I love, I mean, listen, I have, I'm a mom of two small kids, so I love spending time with my kids. Anytime we can be outside in nature together, that's really um, everything. I, I love, this sounds insane, but I love being around just like big giant trees. So I love being in forests. <laughs> I love being in forests. We live near the Presidio. I love being in the Presidio. Um, so being in nature is something that I really love, but you know, I also come from a winemaking family. So I, you know, I love exploring wines around the world. I love traveling. Um, I love sitting down and, and making a beautiful meal and sharing it with friends and family. So, um, I think probably if there was a commonality between all that, it's really about like connection. Um, I really like to find moments of a very kind of true connection. Well said, well said. Well, April, are you ready for our signature rapid fire game? I can't wait. Well, this, it's a speed game. So if you don't know, just say uh, pass. If I don't know, I'm just going to say Snoop. Perfect. I love it. Even Perfect. better. All right, here we go. First one. Sweet potato or regular French fries? Sweet potato. Aisle or window seat? Aisle. Running or walking? Running. Work from home or office? Home. Beach or mountains? Mountain. Love winning or hate losing? Love winning. Pancakes or waffles? Waffles. Netflix or Hulu? Netflix. Passenger or driver? Passenger. Night or morning? Night. Hot coffee, iced coffee. Hot. Fiction or nonfiction? Nonfiction. Oh no, fiction, fiction, fiction. Not even, <laughs> not even, I don't know where I've, no, fiction all day long. Concert or sports game? Concert. Night at the aquarium or the Met? The Met. Instagram or Twitter? Snoop. Mm. Watch sports or play sports? Play. Board game, video game? Board. What movie could you watch a hundred times and not get tired of? Hope Floats. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. What's the last great book you read? Oh, The Overstory. Big Trees. I, I get it. Most important. Oh, great job, April. Great. Very last question. What 
What advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? This is not going to come as a big surprise, but focus on culture sooner than you think. Well said. And I think that's, that's, you know, that speaks to any stage of business. So thanks for that. Those, those wise words and joining us on Unfinished Biz. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Unfinished Biz. I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We'll be back next time with Larry Liu, founder and CEO of We, a fast-growing ethnic e-grocer delivering fresh groceries to customers in the United States. We's products include meats, snacks, beverages, health and beauty tools, even household essentials. Don't miss the story of We on the next Unfinished Biz. These are the opinions of Robin and Wayne and our guest entrepreneur and are not necessarily the opinions and thoughts of VMG partners. And now a word from our lawyers. This is not an offer to buy or sell any investments. Entrepreneurs interviewed on this podcast may not be associated with VMG businesses and discussions of their companies should not be viewed as an endorsement by VMG.